And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Here's a question. Did you know an all bond portfolio can earn up to 6.88% yield? As interest rates plateau and eventually begin to drop, Betterment is offering the BlackRock Target Income Portfolio, a 100% bond portfolio that can be a smart alternative to cash. Here's a couple more reasons why you may want to consider BlackRock Target Income Portfolio. First, it has four different yield targets to choose from based on your preferred level of risk. Second, it's built by BlackRock, one of the world's leading asset managers. And third, while it's still an investing product, it's generally less risky than stocks alone. But did you really hear anything after up to 6.88% yield? Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Learn more at betterment.com slash bonds. As of 4.1924 for the aggressive target income portfolio, blended 30-day SEC yield is the weighted average of 30-day SEC yields standardized calculation for each ETF in the portfolio, net of fees 0.25%. Yield is not performance. Investment returns may vary. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Betterment, not BlackRock, is responsible for its advisory relationships with clients. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. So there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is October 16th. It's the weekend and we are so happy you are joining us. Today, we are going to talk to somebody whose byline I've been reading for a long time. His name is Robin Wigglesworth. He is the global finance correspondent of the Financial Times. Robin has just written a new book that is so uh, interesting. It is called Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. Now, you guys know I love index funds. So going back into the history of how this started was so illuminating. Robin, who self-describes himself as immensely nerdy, uh, makes this very, very tangible. So here is the first part of our interview with Robin Wigglesworth. I mean, look, you wrote a deep dive, 300-page book about index funds. You must be some sort of, I don't know, maybe you're you're a glutton or maybe you just were up constantly because you were having children. What was going on that made you write this book? Yeah, well, I'm obviously I'm, you know, I'm a financial journalist, so I'm immensely nerdy anyway. But for me, you know, it was something I'd written a lot about from the for the Financial Times, like how this was changing markets. And it was one of those stories, the more I dug into it, and the more I dug into the history of it, the more I realized just how monumental this was and how it's kind of arguably one of the biggest, least appreciated economic stories of our times. 
Because here you have this fantastic invention by a bunch of these kind of nobodies, or essentially widely hated by Wall Street, that saved people hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. And what's so fascinating is that I think people like me who come from the world of financial planning, investment management, I think that many of us went through a transformation that some of the the characters in your book went through, which is you come out of a certain brand of, say, Wall Street, and you say, well, you know, with enough research, you should be able to outperform an index. And we always compare ourselves with the index. And then you get to some moment in your life where you're like, actually, that doesn't work. The idea that you go back to around this is really grounded in research. So first, let's talk about what is this thing called the theory of speculation? Well, so the theory of speculation was a PhD thesis by Louis Bacalier. And he was born in France. He, he was supposed to run his, his parents' vineyard and, and vintnery. Uh, when they passed away too early, but he wanted to study in Sorbonne. So after running the family business and work, going into the French army, he, he went to the Sorbonne to study mathematics, but he had to work. So he worked at the French Stock Exchange at the time. This is the late 1800s, early 1900s. So he decided to write his PhD thesis on how stock market prices seem to move. And at the time, finance was a little bit grubby, right? Certainly in France, so people thought that this was a fairly unorthodox uh, subject, but the theory of speculation that he wrote is kind of the wellspring from which I argue index funds sprung because he was the first guy that showed mathematically that actually stock prices seem to move at random. And arguably, you know, for every person that sells a stock, somebody is buying it for the same reason. So arguably at any given time, the market reflects what people think is the fair price. So this was the kernel of efficient markets. I had always thought that the idea around index funds was sort of like the John Bogle of Vanguard brainchild. So this book was really so fascinating because you go back not just to the early 1900s, but then even in the 20th century after the crash and uh, I guess in the 30s, that there was a lot of research that was being done around whether or not people can predict the performance of a, of a given stock or company. And was that something that you kind of knew or is that something you stumbled upon in your research? Well, it was something both, I'd say. I mean, mm -hmm. Isaac Newton once said that, you know, if he's seen further, then it's only by standing on the shoulders of giants. And Jack Bogle was undisputably a titan of the financial industry, uh, but he definitely stood on the shoulders of some big giants. And it was a delight peeling back the onion, as it were. The more you further you went back, you realized that people had kind of done some of this work here and there. But this is the, an era before rigorous data uh, collection, long before the era of computers. It was really only in the 50s and 60s when people could actually calculate this and show it with cold, hard evidence that it really started to sink in, that people could basically show this is how the market does in the long run and this is how well investment managers do in the long run. And you can see there's a bit of a gap there and that was hard to explain away. Whenever you had someone who brought this up, it is the person or the research is met with this huge pushback by the industry. Now, 
Is that still going on today? I mean, there are still people, I think, who if even when I say, well, you know, just by the index, they'll be like, well, you know what? Uh, this person has beaten the market this many times and or this pension fund has done this many times. And so what is it about these outsiders that allows them to accept the information as presented rather than push back against it? Well, I think it's a little bit just the fundamental issue that it's hard for incumbents to disrupt themselves. Kodak, you know, did actually invent digital cameras. It did actually have a project on, but it just couldn't it couldn't push through with this. Blockbusters had online streaming, kind of realized that this could become a thing, but just couldn't adapt or didn't want to adapt. And for Wall Street, you know, this is a, a product that just is anathema to the whole ethos of Wall Street. I mean, really, mm-hmm. the ethos of, of, of most people, right? Nobody wants to accept mediocre. I want to be a really good journalist. I want to be better than the next journalist. And that's how kind of humanity almost have, walks forward. And index funds seems almost contrary to that. It's accepting mediocrity, as the former head of Fidelity once said. You know, who wants to be operated on by a mediocre surgeon? But investment management is one of those few areas of life where, like you say, it actually pays off empirically, to be a little bit lazy and just index. And these criticisms come and go and have, yes, like you say, since the dawn of indexing, I mean, since even before the index fund was invented, people were attacking the the very idea of it. Uh, And I don't think it's ever going to go away. There's always going to be some people that just see this as the enemy and will find something to to object against. So I'm just going to say that for myself, as someone who used to be a money manager, I remember in the 90s, I, you know, I was managing a bunch of money for clients. And it was true that in the year 1999, early 2000, I sold out a bunch of technology companies and the trade worked. It was great, right? But it did take me too long to get back in. And that was my lesson in that I can't actually time the market. Even if I had the right idea, I would have to execute two sides of this trade perfectly. And that is when I became much more of an adherent to the strategy of indexing. I guess that for me, because I was a money manager and a financial planner, mm. I told myself this story of like, okay, well, if this is mathematically true, and I am going to use that, then I can at least do this thing called financial planning. If you are just a straight up money manager, if you believe it's true, then your business is kaput, right? The the mathematics around indexing are irrefutable. I mean, it is the markets are, are it's a zero sum game. And for everybody who does better than the market, you know, somebody has to do worse. For everybody who sold the stock, somebody bought it and vice versa. So no investment manager will ever argue that side of things. But their argument is that, well, we are obviously better than average, so we can do better in the long run. Like we might have a year or a month or a quarter or even a couple of years where we do badly, but we're amazing and we can definitely time the market or find the best selection of securities or build the best portfolio. But like you say, I think most investors, most, most big, really successful investors, have some sort of moment where they realize that the market is just immensely difficult and is getting harder to beat consistently. So I tend to think that the best, most consistently successful money managers that I've met and spoken to over the years are actually quite often the people that admit the most willingly 
the limits to their knowledge and how much stuff they can get wrong. Because frankly, like I said, with markets, you were right to sell tech stocks at that time, or but maybe you should have waited another couple of months or mm. bought in. I mean, these are the, the problems. Like I have a lot of sympathy for asset managers because that job is just very darn hard. And we kind of need them to make markets, keep them a little bit efficient, but we probably don't need as many as we have around today. When you hear someone who's running a big endowment, right? Like um, remember uh, the David Swenson from the Yale Endowment, he wrote that huge piece about like, you'll never beat the market because I have access to the best managers and you, the little peons, you have no access to that. How do you respond to that after doing all the research that you've done? I, I kind of think it's true. I tend to say that the one thing that differentiates me a little bit from what I sometimes call the passive jihadists, the, the, the full-on efficient market zealots that say that anybody who's ever beaten the market, it is pure luck. Because in the long run, somebody's going to beat the market. Just in the long run, there are very few of them and you can't identify them before time. I do think there are some people that through the dint of the teams that put together have and probably will consistently beat the markets. But there are very few of them. They have capacity constraints and they don't rent out their skill very cheaply. So a classic case is a Renaissance Technologies, this huge computer-driven hedge fund started by Jim Simons. Their main hedge fund, they have others that investors dabble into, but like their, their, their sexiest flagship fund has been closed to anybody but those who work at, at Renaissance for over a decade now because they just don't, they don't, you can't even get access to that. And if you look at all the top hedge funds in the world, you know, that's a Citadel or Millennium, they tend to be close. They're not taking in new investors. And I think but that- then what is, But so what is it that makes them able to beat the market? Is it the modeling? Is it the the girth of the trade? I mean, what what is it that you think can actually allow them to beat the market? And could that possibly be replicated for the masses? Uh, not for the masses, because fundamentally, as soon as something gets commoditized, it's a commodity. So the, there's an old quote that one of the pioneers of indexing, Jim Verton at Wells Fargo, had pinned on his wall. There's none of us is as smart as all of us. And I think the best asset managers, whether it's of classic mutual fund groups like Capital Group, with its American funds or T. Rowe Price or hedge funds, I tend to find that it's people, process and teams. Like they have good culture and teams that work together so they all become more than the sum of their parts. And they have good process. So you're not dependent on a single star manager because like every era of Wall Street, as you well know, has had one or two managers that just look like absolute rock stars. Everything they touch turns to gold. And then at some point, there's a market break and it all fizzles and it's revealed to be fool's gold, essentially. That they were just riding one particular strategy or trade that did well for a few years or maybe even 10, 15 years. But inevitably, the air comes out and they're revealed to be human, very human. That, I think, is the issue. You rely on if you find a good asset manager with good culture, a good teamwork, and a good process, then I think you probably have a better shot than picking whoever is the hot fad of the day, whether it's like a Jerry Tsai back in the 60s or Bill Miller or Kathy Wood today, for example. So if you were to give advice to someone who I, we actually get this question every so often, like, well, should I put money in Kathy Wood's fund? What's your answer to that? Is there a, is there a more mathematical answer to that? Because 
it does not appear that she has what you just described as essentially alpha uh, people process team. She's making a momentum trade, isn't she? Kind of, yes, I, I think so. Uh, I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And it is interesting always seeing somebody do something a little bit different. And she's had phenomenal success. Yeah. But broadly, yes, every era has had a breakout style like that. And inevitably, they've crumbled. So I, I, I'm very wary of giving advice because, frankly, like I talk to people a zillion times smarter than me all the time, and I see them screw up all the time as well. I quite often end up writing about their screw ups, right? So mm -hmm. that's made me very humble about how much I know. And I'm always say, worried about saying, don't invest in X or invest in Y. And then you know, two days later, two years later, somebody comes and complains. But broadly speaking, the only advice I feel very comfortable giving just because it's backed up by centuries of data across every major market in the world is that the vast majority of investors should index across the vast majority of the portfolio and just forget about it. And not sweat it. And you know what else I always try to uh, explain to people is that, you know, your ability to save is probably going to be a bigger determining factor about reaching your goals rather than what you actually invest in once you do save. In other words, even if these are superstar investors and they, you know, they swing big and they make over the course of how many, you know, let's say 30 years of investing, maybe they do deliver a little bit more return. However, your ability to actually save money in your real life and get that money to work is actually probably the one thing you can control. So it is incumbent on people to hear this conversation and not say, oh, you see, all I have to do is index and sit on my ass. It's I actually have to save the money, put it away and do it over and over and over again. And then I'll stay out of trouble and I should probably reach my goal. It's actually not that complicated. And I think that that's something that people just don't dwell on too much. Well, I think it's. I think it was Bogle, Bogle or Buffett, or maybe both of them, that said, you know, it's a, successful investing is a little bit like dieting. Like it's actually easy. We know what you should do, but it's so hard to do in practice. Mm. It does require discipline, and I do think that, like, if you're going to invest with a Kathy Wood or whoever comes next, you know, the the, the key is not performance chasing. If you think she or he uh, they're onto something, then. You need to kind of stick to that because, like you say, we know that actually the end result for most investors is even worse than if they're just stuck with a fund manager. The fact that people, you know, chase momentum, we chase hot hands, and then we get out early. Like Kathy Wood, phenomenal returns in 2020, massive inflows and massive inflows at the start of the year. But now the year has come out and she's, you know, billions of dollars have seeped out of her funds. So, you know, what has changed with her process? Absolutely nothing. But why would you invest in her if you if you didn't believe in the process? So I do think a lot of people could save themselves a lot of grief by, you know, being a little bit more disciplined, whether they choose an active fund or a passive one. Because we do know that, you know, active funds do suffer a lot from money sloshing in and out all the time as well. I mean, that's just, you know, the emotional, the fear and the greed just kick in. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about DFA or as my friend in the business likes to call them, the evangelical indexers. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, it's a fascinating outfit. I mean, Rex Sinkfield, one of the founders, even he describes himself as the Ayatollah of efficient markets. <laughs> Uh, where Gene Farmer, the the famous University of Chicago professor and Nobel laureate, is I guess you know God in the efficient markets pantheon. Uh, they're a fa fascinating shop, and and 
they don't they're not pure indexes in that they don't just buy market cap cheap easy sort of vanguard fund style stuff they they try to sort of lean into certain durable factors or what people like gene farmer have shown to historically be sort of characteristics of certain stocks that tend to do well over the long run but they they definitely have a sort of a, a whiff of evangelism about them don't they Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was in the business, the one reason I didn't want to use them, I remember, was that there was this, it was like a lockbox. Like, you're either going to use us for all of your investing or none of it. You cannot go halfway. (laughs) That's a pretty big ask of someone who's managing money, right? And the other part of it that's hard, and I know that they've changed some around some of their policies, you know, in the next, you know, in the subsequent decades, but what you have to be able to tell the person who's investing, the, the client, is there's going to be severe underperformance in certain years. You're going to hate me for certain years. And your client will nod the, their heads and say, yes, of course, I know that. And then that crap year comes and they're like, why is this so bad? Why is this so bad? And you say, well, remember we had that conversation? And they look at you like you've never had the conversation. So it's a, it has been a good proof that their model works. Jack Bogle was really good at this at Vanguard as well. Like whenever like one of their funds or the market had done really well, he be the Cassandra that comes in and spoils everybody's mood and saying, well, this can't continue and this is terrible. And, and actually, I think that's absolutely essential. And I think DFA, you know, for them, it was partially that they started a small caps fund. This was the first ever fund. And the first year, it was great. But then small caps had one of the longest, worst runs that they've had in a century. Mm. So they almost, I mean, I don't think they almost went under, but it was definitely a very tough, lean time for them. And I think that kind of scarred them. And I think that kind of culture of them upfront both warning direct institutional clients, but also indoctrinating financial advisors that want to use dimensional products that, you know, you need to be fully aware that all strategies have drawdowns that can be long and painful. And yes, I mean, it doesn't make it that much easier to explain to clients, but I do feel that most human beings, when given obvious transparency, when we feel that somebody's being straight and upfront with us, we accept it. Okay, that was part one of our interview with Robin Wigglesworth, the author of Trillions, uh, all about the sort of the background of the the index fund industry. If you've got a financial question, maybe it's about index funds, maybe it's about something else. Just give us a holler, hop onto the website, jillonmoney.com, click the contact button, and we'll get your message. Don't forget to tell us if you'd like to come on the air. All right, very good. Do something nice for someone else today. Grit, growth, grace. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.